0: Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard, I'm Director of ECFR, and this week we're going to be talking about the European Union in times of Covid, and more specifically, whether the EU has risen to the challenge which Emmanuel Macron posed to it in his interview with the Financial Times. Earlier this week, we had one of our series of quarantines, big thinker calls, where we spoke to Clément Bourne, who's uh, Emmanuel Macron's advisor, who talked about the moment of truth that we're in at the moment, where we have to decide whether the European Union is a political project or strictly a market plan. And yesterday, in its video call, the European Union tried to rise to the challenge challenge and to help me make sense of whether it really has I have an all-star cast both from Berlin. We have Jana Pulierin, who's the head of ECFR's Berlin office and Henrik Enderlein who's the president and professor of political economy at the Hertie School of Governance and also the director of the Jacques Delors Institute in Berlin. Thank you both for joining me. Let's start with yesterday's meeting of the European Council. Henrik tell us what happened and what you think about it.
1: Well, thank you, Mark, first for having us on this uh, podcast. It's not that easy to say what happened because there was no written statement. There is no overall conclusion. And uh, if I have to put the things together this morning, I think everyone uses this metaphor of the glass being half full of half empty. I would want to discuss the size of the glass. Um, I think expectations were just not right for this European Council. Many people expected that this would be the big leap forward of the European Union or a big clash. In fact, it was just a preparatory meeting to get the discussion started on the recovery fund. And on that point, I think the European leaders simply have still very, very different approaches, but they're also preparing the next discussion. So essentially, what we know is that the recovery fund should be large. Uh, Numbers were floated yesterday, but not explicitly endorsed. I think we talk about 300, 400, perhaps 500 billion euros. And the idea is to channel this through the European Union budget. as many of your listeners will know, the European Union budget is usually very small, it's only 1.1 percent of GDP, and uh, it's usually fixed for seven years. Now, right now, we are in the process of fixing the next seven-year cycle of this multi-annual financial framework. So, the moment you want to channel the recovery fund through the European Union budget, you actually need to make this part of these huge MFF—that's the abbreviation—MFF discussions for the next seven years. And this is what the leaders started to do yesterday. And I think um, they now think about what to do, whether to increase the overall size of the budget for one year or whether there should be bilateral loans complementing um, the EU budget, whether there should be outright grants. I think this is all now on the table. The European Commission has been asked um, to put proposals forward.
0: On the 7th of May, they have to come back with their proposals. That's true. I think there is already
1: one paper or two papers that are ready that contain this proposal. And uh, now, obviously, it's the uh, usual diplomatic channels trying to uh, influence what's going on there. I would like to say two words about the political messaging here. This is typical EU Brussels bubble policy work, which is very technocratic. I just tried to explain it to you. So you need to understand these abbreviations, these logics, these negotiations. In order to make sense of the discussions. I think this type of technocratic approach to a rescue scheme in one of the biggest social and societal disasters in recent European history, that's just not the right way to go about this. So um, I think the economic glass can be half-full, completely full, that's not the point. I think the political glass is empty at that stage and that is the very bad news, not only from yesterday, but from the past two to three weeks.
0: We'll go into some of the details of this later, but maybe we should, if we start with that sort of political messaging, are you as negative as Henrik, Jana?
2: So I agree with many things that um, Henrik has said. There was clearly uh, no political guidance coming from that Oiko on resources, on grants and borrowing But still, um, what I think was very positive, and that brings me to the political aspect, is that this toxic discussion about the corona bonds is off the table, at least for now. I think this was really poisoning the atmosphere in the run-up to this oiko, and this discussion was really going nowhere. It was increasingly difficult for member states like Italy, who had kind of tried to push that so hard to come out of the corner where they have gotten themselves into, and it was also increasingly difficult for Germany because before the EUCO it was really all about either you are in favor of Corona bonds and for mutualization of that then you are pro-European and then you are up to the challenge and if you are not And if you show no solidarity, and I think that was really not helpful at all. And so now we have the MFF as the clear vehicle of choice. I know that will be difficult, but I think it can um, unlock far more money from the member states. And it makes it easier for Germany to sell that Germany is spending more on the EU budget and kind of not on overall grant money. I think the argument is just sellable much easier in Germany right now.
0: But Hendrik, can you explain a bit as an economist what the kind of core divisions are which people are having about how this money gets raised? Because I, th- I think, you know, when Macron gave his interview, he was talking about some of the, the dangers of not mutualizing debt because what's going to happen if we start suspending state aid rules and allow governments to start bailing out large parts of their economy, you could see some countries with much more fiscal headroom than others because they find it a lot cheaper to, to raise money on international markets and that that could lead to massive distortions of the single market.
1: I think the economic way to look at this is to ask where is debt located? It's sometimes as simple as that. So Italy, after this crisis, will probably have a debt-to-GDP ratio going into the area of 155, 160%, perhaps 165. And I think Italy and Spain are concerned that this additional money they need should not be just normal loans or normal debt accounted as such. What the European Union is thinking about is finding a way, building a bridge where Italy actually takes money or Spain takes money from the European Union, but this is not accounted for as this official that they have to pay back in financial markets. It's like, uh, you know, when you ask your grandmother to give you money um, rather than asking a bank. And in that sense, it's it's a real solidarity vehicle that can be built through the European Union budget. But you need also to understand that this money has to go back to the EU. And so uh, what's on the discussion on the table right now is that if Italy, let's say, gets 100 billion euros from the European Union, who pays that money back in the next 20 years? A share of this will be Italy itself. And the Italians themselves insist that they want this kind of paying back the European Union. But then obviously Germany will also put money into the pot and Germany will not ask for money out of this pot to flow into Germany. And this would then be a transfer component, this transfer component is right now the second big point of discussion, how large should it be? And uh, in the technical discussions, then you narrow this all down to this grants versus loans debate. Should this be a gift? A part of this will be a gift, or should this be loans? And I think a, a mixture of the two ultimately is what will come out of this.
2: But Henry, isn't that what von der Leyen has already suggested, that parts of it will be grants coming through the EU budget and that kind of the recovery fund will work with loans and that there will be this split? Isn't that already kind of on the table as as a solution?
1: No, no, you're absolutely right, Jana. It is on the table. The point is, what's the relative weight of the two? I think the recovery fund can also be constructed with a grant component. So if Italy, you know, Italy would pay 17 percent and France would pay 17 percent of this of this EU budget commitment. So what would technically happen is that the EU says we increase our expenditure ceiling to, let's say, 2 percent of GDP from 1 percent right now. This gives uh, the EU financing capacity or no spending capacity, we should put it that way, of around 160 billion euros per year. And uh, instead of asking for this money to be financed directly by the member states now, they would actually go to financial markets, raise debt. That would be common debt, not entirely mutualized, so not jointly and severally guaranteed debt. And uh, this is why I think the Corona bond, Eurobond discussion was never really helpful. um, Because... What we might now get is something close to a jointly issued bond that's not entirely
0: mutualized. Pretty much. But if the money is basically borrowed by the European Commission, why is it not mutualized? Well, you always have to ask the question: What happens if a country doesn't pay back its share later
1: on? Situation: The European Union has the possibility to cut the monetary flows that would go to Italy or to Spain in 10, 15 years, and thereby use what the money, the money they actually have already received as a guarantee to pay back that loan. But it's a de facto mutualization, And in that sense, I think it's good. And if you listen carefully to what the Germans say, you will always hear this kind of signal. It shouldn't be an explicit mutualization of debt. That an implicit way of guaranteeing this through the EU budget is totally excluded. And in that sense, I think there is some silver lining here or some possibility to move on. Obviously, the Dutch and a few others are still opposed to this solution. Just to close the circle, just to end the story, so Italy would pay in 13 percent, France would pay in 17 percent, Germany would pay in 25 percent into that big package. The question is, how much do you get out? So if Italy gets out 25 percent and Germany gets out nothing, then there is a direct transfer in addition to the loan component. And so even in the recovery fund, you can build a, uh, a dual approach combining grants and loans. And this is what the discussion is currently pretty much about.
0: And where does the discussion about perpetual bonds and the uh, the um the spanish proposal and those sorts of ideas for different ways of raising money from international markets fit into this
1: you wouldn't be talking to two germans mark if we didn't bring up legal issues at one point in time the problem of of, of perpetual bonds is that this is very close to uh, committing to take over these debts forever And that is uh, very close to a direct financing of member states by other member states. And that is not allowed through the treaty. I actually think we don't need perpetual bonds. A solid uh, 20, 30-year bond construction, I think, would do the trick. If there's one thing we're pretty certain about is that this crisis is temporary with regard to the health implications. Now, the structural, societal implications, economic implications might last for quite some time. But I think 20-30 years is a very good time dimension. We don't need to talk about eternity.
2: One problem that I see um, right now is kind of the different sense of urgency or the different speeds with which member states approach this issue. I have the impression that in Germany and the Netherlands, the thinking is very much kind of that the three-pillar approach that was agreed by the Eurogroup and uh, yesterday by the OECO is kind of enough for the beginning uh, and to manage the crisis and we have some more time, whereas Italy...
0: What are the three pillars, Jana?
2: So it's It's the ESM, it's the SURE program, and it's the European Investment Bank. There was a great kind of a package that was agreed by the Eurogroup, and the EUCO confirmed this yesterday. So the the German thinking is that this is, I mean, not enough in total, but at least enough for the kind of immediate... first phase whereas Italy really insisted yesterday that the recovery fund needs to be up and running and delivering grants by the second half of the year so my fear now is that kind of with kicking the can down the road or back to the commission and now the negotiation starts and also bringing the budget in that that will take forever and that we will just not be there when we need to be there
0: can we talk a bit about what's happening in Germany? Because one way of reading what's happened in the last few days, because Angela Merkel went yesterday to the Bundestag and gave a a remarkably visionary and pro-European speech by her own. At least she cleared the low bar that she set herself in in past speeches where she talked about solidarity and she seemed to be shifting Mm. the German position on various different fronts, even though she did rule out um, the mutualisation of debt explicitly, as as, as you said earlier. Is that a kind of tactical Merkel-like shift where she's sort of sounding nice and sort of hugging the solidarity arguments close so that she she can kill them by dragging her feet later on and hiding behind the Dutch and the Finns and the Austrians and the the frugal countries? Or do you think that she has had a a sort of genuine conversion and is thinking about the crisis in a different way?
2: I would be kind of the pro-Merkel voice here in this call. I think she really, really believes in that. She said that so many times lately, that Germany can only do well if Europe does well. That makes sense also, not only kind of because of our values, European values, but also because of our German business model. And that it was, she said yesterday, it was important to help other European states quickly, and not in a year or two. And I think that's why she is so reluctant with kind of the whole idea of the corona bonds, because that's what Hendrik said before, that for Germany, this is very much a legal issue. And kind of for Germans, there is no way to, to see corona bonds happening anytime soon. And, and so she, I think, wants to be very pragmatic and uses the instruments that are there. And I think also in Germany, people feel misunderstood and also treated unfairly in this debate, because the German argument is that Germany has already done something, has already moved, that this three-pillar approach I talked earlier is already a compromise, that Germany is not insisting on conditionality when it comes to the ESM, and that the, the support for the ECB that, the, that Germany shows and, and their policy is already more than Germany has done in the past. Don't forget, there is also that fear that Euroscepticism can raise in Germany, too and so I think that Germany really wants to do more. It wants to be pragmatic, but it has clear red lines and limits. But within this limits, I think one can work with Germany constructively.
1: I, I'm very much on the same line here as Jana. I think one of the characteristics of Angela Merkel is that she um, she doesn't have these ideological deep, deep, deeply rooted convictions which she will never change in the course of being chancellor. We've seen her flip-flop, that's the negative expression, or we've seen her adjust to external uh, shocks or changes quite dramatically throughout her career. She started by saying Germany should keep nuclear, then Fukushima happened, and within a few days, um, she decided that Germany would abandon nuclear. And in that sense, her resistance to European solidarity um, and even to mutualization of that is something that I think she started to think about deeply again in the past two to three uh, months or two to three uh, or or actually one month. I think that's really the moment she she started to change. And in that sense, I I think she's genuine when saying she wants solidarity. And I think Germany is ready um, to give more her clear sentence that Germany would have to massively increase the contributions to the EU budget is a very simplified version of what I said earlier, which is that there would be this issuance of joint uh, debt through the EU budget, and Germany would be on the backstop of this kind of debt. And I think that's it's, it's real solidarity. So I would give her credit for that. Now, the problems she faces are her own party. There is quite some resistance within German public opinion. Obviously, the SPD is closer to this kind of stance And so for the time being, she is in her usual Merkel position. She doesn't, you know, give a big interview to the FD and outline her big vision for Europe and say what Germany's role is. She is waiting. She's playing catenaccio with regard to Italy. If you like football, catenaccio is this staying in the defensive and waiting what's going to happen. And this is exactly how she approached the European Council. She looks at the Frugal Four and how they're uh, opposing Italy and Spain and France to some extent. She observes this conflict, fight, or uh, very intensive discussion. And at the end, she will move forward and say, here's the compromise solution. Together with Ursula von der Leyen and together with Charles Michel, they will present this proposal in early May. And then Merkel, in her very Merkelian way, will have broken a compromise, which is very technocratic. I think that's the big drawback of the solution, um, but which will show um, some significant solidarity.
2: And I, th- I think the problem for Merkel and what one has to keep in mind is really that this debate about uh, Corona bonds or mutualization of debt and everything that's related to that is so toxic for her for her own party. Um, I remember uh, well the debate in 2015 about the third rescue package. For Greece, that nearly split the party apart. Merkel had problems to get her own majority on board back then. 60 MPs voted against this package. And the AfD was founded precisely in opposition to Merkel's Eurozone policy approach. So she is under very much pressure from her own party. And she just managed to unite the party again behind her after the migration crisis, where a lot of in the uh, CDU said that they were not on board any longer. So there is huge support behind Merkel for her kind of domestic uh, corona management and a lot of support from the public and she would be foolish to 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 put that at risk right now that's just she would never do that because she thinks she has room for maneuver now that she wants to use but she doesn't want to kind of spoil it or poison it
0: can we talk a bit more about the german domestic politics because it's quite clear that every single time there's a european crisis the german appetite for solidarity is less than it was (laughs) the time before. If you look at Friedrich Merz, who's one of the candidates running to replace Angela Merkel and his uh, social media activities over the last few days, they've been quite shocking to a lot of people outside of Germany in their sort of intransigence and, and the sort of language that he's using about the Italians. How do you see this evolving I mean it was quite interesting with the refugee crisis that at the beginning Germans were very proud of Angela Merkel's decisions and there was all this kind of talk about Deutschland hell about and many people particularly on the kind of left so not necessarily natural Merkel supporters were incredibly proud that Germany was on the right side of history and they saw this as a sort of cleansing moment in terms of Germany's international role and then it went very sour afterwards and it has led to a completely different politics, both, you know, in terms of the rise of the AFD and, and and other parties, but particularly in terms of the politics within Angela Merkel's own party. How do you see this sort of evolving? Because it is possible that even if she manages to get the party to unite behind quite a large budget and fiscal transfers and is willing to use political capital to, to talk Rutter and, and the Finns and the Austrians down, that she could end up uh, making it easier for Friedrich Merz to become the leader of the party and for the CDU to go in a much more Eurosceptic direction in the future.
2: I think that very much depends how this crisis will unfold at the moment, and I think that is also a risk, the sense in Germany is that Germany is managing this crisis quite well. So I think at the moment there is this support um, from the German society to help others. You see that in polls. Even CDU-CSU supporters way above 60% support financial support for other European countries and only AFD supporters don't. But I am afraid that this could change once Germany enters a severe economic recession and people start to feel the consequences of this and the magnitude of this. And then Friedrich Merz might get some support for his views. So far, I think that what he did did not go down well in Germany. Uh, it was not really successful.
1: A crisis always benefits the leader in power, and this is Angela Merkel right now. And in that respect, this corona crisis has totally changed the discussion about the Merkel succession and CDU leadership. The reason is that Merkel was almost becoming a lame duck. People like Friedrich Merz were back. Annegret kramp the defense minister, who's current chairwoman of the party, was pretty much suffering and then even resigned just a couple of weeks before this all unfolded as CDU chairwoman. And, and now we're in a situation where everyone looks at Merkel and says she's the person that should lead the country. And all the uh, potential hairs really lost clout in this crisis. Matz is not taken seriously in these discussions. He's barely visible, actually, in the real discussions. The other contenders, I mean, Lash, the prime minister of North and Westphalia, tried to be the champion of ending the lockdown as quickly as possible. I think this could backfire, depending on how our infections rate in Germany look. But this was not a very straightforward positioning. The only one who's not even a real contender, but who benefited is Markus Söder, the Prime Minister of Bavaria, with astounding approval ratings right now, above 90% in Bavaria and uh, in the high 80s, I think, for the rest of Germany. He actually was the first to really move and to say, we need to lock down our economy. We need to avoid any kind of contact. He uh, put down a, a real lockdown in Bavaria, whereas the rest of Germany was slightly more open And I think it's this kind of leadership people are looking for. As of today, I think all the bets are are possible.
2: But Hendrik, you forgot uh, Jens Spahn, who's also doing quite well in this crisis.
1: No, no, you're absolutely right. Jens Spahn already declared that he would not be running for the Merkel succession. And that might change, obviously. So officially, he's on record saying, I'm not going to run for the Merkel succession. I'm backing Armin Laschet. If that's true, then we will see. Will he change? That's also a possibility. You're absolutely right. And might there be some, you know, other surprise person? Norbert Röttgen is running. He's a very good contender, very statesman-like. Annegret Kam karrenbauer is doing much better in this crisis now. And so I think when dust has settled, the CDU will try to uh, find a way out of this mess. Right now, it's really a mess. All this talk about the Greens taking the Chancellery, the CDU going down, left wing majority for Germany, this is now up for So the politics of Germany is pretty much unpredictable right now.
0: But is it technically possible for other candidates to join? Because th- I thought that people were given a week to decide whether they were going to run or not. And there are three candidates. And That's true. But they, as the party convention was postponed twice
1: now, and it's probably not going to take place before September, October, I think everything is possible at this stage. You could say, well, we reopen in the race. Why Fix a deadline when so many things change. So the world has changed. Why couldn't other candidates run? I think that's not excluded. Well, Markus Söder, the prime minister of Bavaria, cannot run technically because he is CSU and not CDU. That's the sister part of the CDU from Bavaria. He will endorse one of the CDU candidates and strike a deal and say, I'm going to be the candidate for the answer, but you're going to run the CDU.
0: So it's going to be interesting times, but very, very hard to predict. It's all up for grabs, I think, both within the CDU and within the EU and more generally. There's still time for a lot of uh, quite bitter fights between now and the 6th of May when the proposals are made. And as we know from the last big MFF budget discussion is just because a proposal has been made doesn't mean that it's not going to result in a total breakdown <laughs> when the EU Council finally meets. It's interesting. I mean, many people
1: tell me that what's really lacking right now is the physical interaction between leaders. So this atmosphere of sitting in one meeting room, having these one-to-one conversations between the president of the European Council and one leader, the advisors of the leaders getting together in a room, you, you all remember these pictures when there's one person in the middle with a lap and 15 people really standing around or kneeing close to that person. That's This is how the European Council usually works in a crisis. You cannot create this kind of atmosphere through a video conference. And many people tell me this will only be settled when we really get together physically again and get back to our usual negotiation mode. That's a very interesting observation, I think.
0: And quite a worrying one, given how um, quickly Euroscepticism is rising in countries like Italy who feel totally betrayed by what's going on, because it could be months before you end up with scenes of people crowding around laptops, given social distancing laws. So on that sober note, I think we'll, we'll end the discussion now, but we'll definitely come back again in the run-up to the 6th of May and then afterwards as well, can see what happens then. But we have one thing left to do on this podcast, which is our bookshelf segment. Jana, what's on your bookshelf at the moment?
2: This is shameless ECFR promotion from my side this time. I thought that my colleagues Tara Warmer and Jonathan Hagenbräuch have just published a very interesting article. And its title is Macron, Merkel and Europe's Moment of Truth. And they wrote it before the OECO, but it reveals a lot about future scenarios and Franco-German relations. And I really enjoyed reading that and I recommend it.
0: What about you, Henrik? Well, uh... I will be very
1: boring. And in crisis times, I like to go back to the classics and to, to reread accounts of big transformations, societal shifts. So I think everyone should be rereading Carpolani's Great Transformation at this stage.
0: Fantastic. And I'm going to plug a book that I haven't read yet. It just arrived in the post yesterday, but it's, uh, it's, we started with Macron so we'll end with, with a Macron story. And there's a book by uh, David Daniel and Ismail Émilien which reveals the kind of secret behind Macron's political rise which has just been translated into English and published by Polity Press it's called in English the new progressivism a grassroots alternative to populism of our times I haven't read it yet but I will report back in future podcasts when I've had a chance to do that and hopefully we'll get uh, Ismail Imelian to come on and talk about it if you've enjoyed listening to this podcast please do let all your friends and acquaintances know about it by writing on your social media feeds or ours but above all by giving us a great rating and review on the platform that you use to download this podcast we'll put links up to all the publications we mentioned on our website at www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts but for now from jana pulierin henry enderline myself mark leonard it's goodbye the researcher of ecfr's podcast is lucy Halpenthal, and our editor is marlena riedel thank you very much everyone